welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at historical locations that are reportedly haunted. To understand the hauntings, one must first look at the history behind them, because history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together and learn some cool historical facts along the way. Welcome, foolish mortals, to the first episode of the spooky season here at Historically Haunted. I am your host, Ariel, and Halloween is officially starting today on my podcast. I have a total of four exciting new and spooky episodes to celebrate the Halloween season. Today's episode is number one of a four-part Halloween series, and today I will be talking about the famously haunted Stanley Hotel. Before I start, I wanted to thank anyone who has ever taken the time to listen to my show. I have received many kind reviews and comments, and I just wanted you guys to know that from the bottom of my heart, thank you all so much. I am so glad that I get to spend this time with you guys talking about our two favorite things, history and the paranormal. Many of you guys have also sent me messages telling me that I am making history fun, and I'm so glad that I am because that was my goal when I first started this podcast, and to me, the ghosts and monsters are just an added bonus. So thank you everyone again. And of course, I can't forget my Patreons. You guys really do help make this show possible so I can afford all the monthly hosts fees, as well as helping me upgrade to new equipment and paying for the rights to music and sound effects. I am working on bonus episodes for the Halloween season right now on my Patreon page, and I have some new Patreons to thank right now. They are Jan, Hillary, Carrie, and Irene. Thank you guys so much for signing up and for all of my Patreon support. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon, you can check out my link to my page down below. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, photos of historical places, Places that I talk about on my main episodes, and you will get a thank you card and logo sticker in the mail. To my new Patreons, I will be sending those out the last week of September because I also am sending out my annual Happy Halloween cards that I love handing out during the Halloween time. A free way to help support the show is to leave me a review on the Apple Podcast app. Reviews help others find the show when they are looking to find a new paranormal podcast to try. All right, that's all the housekeeping I had for this episode. I am so excited to start this Halloween series, so let's get this episode started with, of course, our monsters moment. For centuries, people have told stories of having run-ins with strange beasts in forests, monsters in the sea, and having encounters from beyond the stars. I call these monstrous moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's monstrous encounter. This episode's monstrous moment is the Fresno Nightcrawler, or sometimes called the Fresno Alien. I first heard about the Fresno Nightcrawler almost when this footage came out. It was about 14 years ago, and when I heard some people talking about it, I thought it would look something more like a chupacabra or something really scary. So when I googled it, I did not expect to see what looks like a pair of pants walking across the grass. 
Yes, I said pants because that is exactly what they look like, a pair of white pants walking across the grass. The Fresno Nightcrawler is a strange cryptid alien entity. No one really knows exactly what it is, but it is considered one of those strange paranormal instances that just happen. In 2007, a man who wanted to remain anonymous, but most articles I found call him Jose, was living in Fresno, California. He put up a security camera to find out why his dogs had been barking in the middle of the night. This was becoming a common occurrence, and Jose wanted to find out if there was an animal or even maybe a prowler coming onto his property. What he didn't expect to find were two strange-looking creatures walking across his lawn. The creatures were only about four feet tall, and they looked like the bottom torso of a person, but they were extremely skinny. They also looked like they were wearing loose-fitted white bell-bottom pants, and the fabric looked to be of a light material, more like a robe. They walked in a strange, over-exaggerated stride, and their legs were really thin, like tentacles of an octopus kind of thin. If you look at the footage closely, it looks like they might have a small head, and it was placed right about where our belly button would be. When you see the footage, they do truly look like a strange pair of white pants walking by themselves across the lawn, but there is an almost airy one step at a time way that they walk. It's not like a human walks at all. After Jose saw what he had captured on the security camera, he took a video of the security camera monitor. He also called the cops. The police did come out to search his property and saw the security tape. However, the police did not find anything amiss on his property, and they also didn't know what to make of the footage. Jose wanted answers, and he sent the footage to a company called Univision, but they didn't know what to do with the footage either. Still wanting answers, Jose then turned to the paranormal side of investigating. Jose then sent his video to the TV show called Fact or Faked that was on Sci-Fi Channel at the time. The show investigated the footage to see if it had been tampered with, and they also checked to see if you can fake it. They tested different methods, including a puppet and an overlay of a child walking on a lawn dressed in all white, and they came to the conclusion that the footage was in fact real, not tampered with, and they found the Fresno Nightcrawler to be unexplainable. This was not the only time these creatures have been caught on camera. They were also caught on a trail camera in 2011 at Yosemite National Park. Reported sightings of these strange creatures are on the rise, but no one knows what they are. They seem to be peaceful, and they just kind of go about their business not paying attention to anything else. They also never do any damage to property and have never attacked anyone to our knowledge. The biggest question is, what are they? There are always the group that thinks they could be an elaborate hoax, but I found that really hard to believe because of the way these things walk. It's just too weird. Some think that they could be an undiscovered cryptid, while others think that they could be an alien from a swamp-like planet, and that's why they have tentacle-like legs. There are also people that think that they could be spiritual in nature, like a kind of elemental. Whatever they are, they certainly go into the weird paranormal file for me. And I also hope that these Fresno Nightcrawlers remain as peaceful as we all hope they are. The next time you go out in the woods in California, keep an eye out for a pair of walking pants. The elegant and historic Stanley Hotel opened its doors in 1909 in Estes Park, Colorado. Behind the hotel, you can see the majestic mountain range that connects to Rocky Mountain National Park. One of the notable things about this hotel is its inspiration for Stephen King's novel, The Shining. But the hotel had been famous for its ghosts long before King ever came to stay the night. Let's discuss the history of the Stanley, and then I will break down its many ghostly residents.
Up until the late 1700s, the Utes were the main Native American tribe in the mountains and valleys of the Rocky Mountains. As different tribes were forced from their lands by white settlers, the Utes had to share the land with the Arapaho, Comanche, Shoshone, and some bands of the Apache. The first non-Native American settlers were Joel and Patsy Estes from Kentucky. They settled in the valley in the mid-1800s. A man named William Briars and his group of friends were traveling to nearby Long's Peak in 1864. While on their trip, they stayed with the Estes family. Briars wrote about his experiences in the Rocky Mountain News. Briars was the official editor of the paper. In his article, he named the Valley Estes Park and the name stuck. However, the Estes family did not. They left in 1866 to find a better area for their cattle because the winters there were too harsh. Other pioneers came after them. They came to Estes Park looking for land suitable for ranches and farms. These settlers soon found that they made more money opening their homes to summer travelers and charging them for room and board. One influential visitor to the area was Earl of Dunraven of Great Britain. He traveled all over the world to explore and hunt. He had always wanted to travel to the Wild West, so in 1872, he hired hunting guides and was traveling towards Denver, Colorado while hunting along the way. He reached Denver just before Christmas. While attending a party there, he heard stories of the outstanding hunting at Estes Park. Even though the winter weather was harsh, he decided to go there immediately and arrived on December 27th. He returned again in 1873, and by 1874, he decided that he wanted to own Estes Park. Many of the area settlers did not like Lord Dunraven because he used deceitful ways to gain some of his land. He would have some settlers claim the land through the Homesteaders Act, and then they would sell the property to him. The land was strategically chosen so that Lord Dunraven controlled the springs and streams in the valley. Eventually, he owned over 8,000 acres, but really controlled another 7,000 acres due to his ownership of water rights. Dunraven was not very well liked by most of the other settlers because of the sneaky ways he obtained his land. He built the Estes Park Hotel, called the English Inn by locals, in 1874. The hotel was very popular and caused a number of tourists to increase, up to as many as 200 in the summertime. But the Earl of Dunraven began losing interest in Estes Park. His last in-person visit was in the late 1800s, and he eventually sold the land to Freeland O. Stanley in 1908. Freeland O. Stanley and his twin brother Francis were the founders of the Stanley Motor Carriage Company. These two inventors built their first steam-powered car in 1897. These cars were incredibly fast. In 1906, a Stanley rocket set the land speed record for a steam-powered car at the speed of almost 120 miles per hour. The cars outsold gas-powered autos until 1917, even though they were incredibly expensive. For example, a Stanley sedan sold for $3,950, which is about $49,000 today. These cars were basically the Teslas of the early 1900s. In 1903, a 54-year-old Freeland Stanley was diagnosed with tuberculosis. The most popular treatment at this time was fresh dry air, lots of sunshine, and a hearty diet. The air of the Rocky Mountains was a popular choice by people with TB during the early 1900s. Stanley also had a friend who owned property in Colorado. Stanley and his wife Flora came to Denver in March of 1903. He had his Stanley roundabout sent to Denver by train. First, he met with a doctor in Denver and spent a few months at a rented house there. He did not show much improvement by June, so he decided to summer in the mountains and his doctor recommended Estes Park. 
The Stanleys rented a rustic cabin from the Elkhorn Lodge owners. Freeland's health improved incredibly over the summer season. He and Flora were also captivated by the beauty of the Rocky Mountains, so they decided to return every summer. Stanley bought property before heading back east. He worked with an architect to begin construction of his summer home in Estes Park. They named the home Rockside, and it was completed in 1904. By 1907, Stanley had fully recovered from tuberculosis, but today many wonder if he was misdiagnosed. He decided to turn Estes Park into a resort town. He chose to build a grand hotel in the Colonial Revival architectural style. This style was very different from the rustic hotels and lodges that were in the area at the time. The hotel would appeal to the wealthy people from Stanley's social circle in Newtown, Massachusetts. Estes Park did not have electricity at the time, so Stanley had the Fall River Hydro Plant constructed. The plant provided electricity for the hotel and the whole town. The original hotel had 48 guest rooms, with a bathroom for every two rooms. There was a hydraulic elevator, electric lights, telephones, and a complete electric kitchen. There was a music room that could be used to write letters in the daytime and then be used to enjoy chamber music at night. There was also a smoking room and a connected billiards room. Stanley himself did not smoke, but he knew this was a common evening activity for many men. Stanley did, however, enjoy playing billiards. A concert hall was built near the hotel with a Steinway piano as a gift to his wife. Both the music room and concert hall are similar to the Boston Symphony Hall. The stage even has a trap door for theatrical performances. A two-lane bowling alley was located on the lower level. In 1910, the Stanley Manor opened on the property. It was a smaller bed and breakfast to be used as a winter resort when the main building was closed down. However, Estes never really attracted many visitors during the winter. Today, the manor is called the Lodge. Stanley designed a 12-seat steamer car to carry people back and forth between the train depot in the foothill town of Lyons, Colorado and his hotel. It was called the Mountain Wagon. Guests staying at the Stanley Hotel had many activities to choose from. They could golf, bowl, go horseback riding, and take rides in the Stanley steamer cars. Even though there was electricity provided to the hotel, an auxiliary gas lighting system was installed in June 1911. This was to be used as backup in case the electricity system failed. The pipes were filled with gas on June 24th, and then the next day there was an explosion. Gas from a leaky pipe collected in the space between the ceiling of the dining room and the floor of the second story. The electric generator either wasn't operating efficiently or it was knocked out by a storm, so it was decided to use the gas lights that day. A hotel maid was on the second floor lighting the lights in the hotel rooms. When she entered room 217 above the dining room, she struck a match to light the gas lights and the trap gas exploded. The concussion of the explosion caused major damage to the ceiling of the dining room and the floor of the second story. The maid who struck the match was known as Mrs. Wilson, and she was thrown into the hole landing on the dining room floor. Amazingly, she survived, but she broke both of her ankles. Several waiters were slightly injured, but others in the dining room were able to escape unharmed. Mrs. Stanley was a kind woman, and she visited Mrs. Wilson in the hospital throughout her stay. The Stanleys also paid for all of Mrs. Wilson's medical bills. The dining room and the West End of the building suffered damage. Ten large ground floor plate glass windows were shattered and many doors were blown off their hinges. Repairs were made quickly and the hotel was soon back open for business as usual. Stanley continued to invest in the town. Not only did he provide the town's electrical system, but he was also responsible for the town's water system. He was also elected the president of the town's bank. Stanley and the other residents of Estes Park continued to work together to attract summer tourists to the area. A fish hatchery was built on Fall River and elk were reintroduced to the 
area after they had been nearly hunted to extinction. New roads and hiking trails were built and improved. Theodore Roosevelt and naturalist John Muir had been advocating for the appreciation and preservation of nature since the beginning of the late 1800s. Yellowstone was the United States' first national park. President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act into law on March 1, 1872. By 1900, there was a growing movement in the U.S. for conserving and preserving nature. There were seven national parks by 1910. One of the residents of Estes Park was naturalist and host hotel owner Enos A. Mills. Mills was a good friend of John Muir, who he had met on a trip to California. In 1910, he started advocating for another national park in the Rocky Mountains. Mills and Stanley were on the same page as far as making Estes Park and the surrounding mountains tourist-friendly. Stanley provided the finances so Mills could travel all over the United States giving lectures and talking to congressmen seeking support for the new national park. The Denver Chamber of Commerce and Colorado Mountain Club were also in favor of Mills' proposal. The Rocky Mountain National Park Act was signed by President Woodrow Wilson on January 26, 1915. The town of Estes Park was incorporated in April of 1917. This allowed for the local government to manage the growing community. In 1926, Stanley decided to sell his hotel to a private company. The company was unable to create a profit, so Stanley bought the hotel back in 1929 when it went into foreclosure. Stanley sold the hotel again, but this time to Roe Emery. Emery owned the hotel until 1946. From 1946 to 1966, the hotel was owned by Able Management Company. The hotel changed ownership over the years since, and in the 70s it was beginning to get a bit run down. Today, the Stanley is owned by the Grand Heritage Hotel Group. The hotel was only a summer seasonal hotel until 1988. Since the 80s, there have been several renovations done to restore the 140-room hotel to its original splendor. The Stanley also has over 14,000 square feet of meeting space and event space. The Stanley has classic historic rooms, the Lodge is a boutique hotel, new additions include the Aspire, which provides apartment-style lodges for extended stays. They also built condominiums called the Residence. While today this hotel has modern amenities and is in a great location for those wanting to visit Rocky Mountain National Park, the number one reason people stay at the Stanley is for its paranormal activity. There are many stories of paranormal activity at the Stanley Hotel, but probably the most well-known is the experience of Stephen King. He and his wife stayed at the Stanley in 1974 at the end of tourist season. His experiences at the hotel inspired him to write the novel The Shining, which was published three years later. The Stanley Hotel experienced an increase in the numbers of visitors following the popularity of the novel. Most guests were hoping for their own paranormal experiences. Paranormal activity has been experienced at the Stanley even before before King's 1977 visit. The movie version of The Shining starring Jack Nicholson came out in 1980. However, the exterior shots of the movie version of the hotel are not from the Stanley. Instead, they are from the Timberline Lodge near Mount Hood in Oregon. The lodge is a very different architectural style, but many people still think that The Shining was actually filmed at the Stanley Hotel. The famous hedge maze scene was filmed in England on a soundstage. Many guests were disappointed when they discovered that the Stanley Hotel did not actually 
actually have a hedge maze. In 2015, owner John W. Cullen chose to add a maze to the property to celebrate 20 years of his ownership. One movie that actually used the Stanley Hotel was the movie Dumb and Dumber. The movie Dumb and Dumber came out in 1994 and it stars Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels. The Danbury Hotel in the movie is actually the Stanley Hotel. In 1997, the Shining TV miniseries was filmed at the Stanley as well. The hotel embraces its history and its connection to the paranormal. The Stanley Hotel hosts historic day tours that provides guests a chance to learn about the hotel's history, architecture, and local folklore. They also offer the Stanley Hotel Spirited Night Tour, led by a storyteller who shares the more spirited stories of the hotel. One article I read mentioned that there is a waiting list for the rooms rumored to have the most paranormal experiences. On that note, let's start talking about the ghosts. This hotel is over 100 years old, and it is said to be one of the most haunted in the United States. However, did you notice something missing from the history? This hotel has not had anything extreme happen on the property that we know of, and it's nothing that you would usually expect from a place that is said to be so haunted. And yet, the Stanley Hotel is on everyone's most haunted list. Let's first discuss the hauntings found at the hotel, and then I will go into the theories as to why this hotel has so many spirits wandering around its halls. First off, let's talk more about Stephen King and how this building inspired The Shining. King's bestseller, The Shining, and the movie that followed in the 80s is what made this hotel famous. But even before the book, this hotel had a ghostly reputation. When Stephen King and his wife Tabitha were touring Estes Park, Stephen was struggling with his newest book called Dark Shine. He decided to look for inspiration in a secluded spot. So while he and his wife were traveling around the area, they decided to go to a hotel that they had heard was haunted, the Stanley Hotel. When they arrived at the hotel, they did not know that the hotel was closing for the season the very next day. They decided to just stay one night, and they were given the best suite available at the hotel, room 217. He and his wife were the only guests in the hotel that night, and they ate dinner alone in a large empty dining hall. While King was asleep in his room, he had a vivid nightmare about his young son running through the halls of the empty Stanley Hotel, wide-eyed and terrified. His son was looking over his shoulder as he was being chased by a possessed fire hose. King woke with a start in the early morning hours drenched in sweat. He looked around the room for his son until he remembered that he was safe at home with the babysitter. He then got up, lit a cigarette, and sat in a chair near the window overlooking the mountain range. By the time he had finished his cigarette, he had the bones for a new book that he went on to call The Shining. Now, there are some reports that King had a vision of a dead woman lying in a bathtub, and that's what sparked the idea for the book. I also saw a report that he saw ghosts having a party inside of one of the empty ballrooms, but I couldn't find any proof that those were actually true. The only one that we know 100% is true is the strange dream he had while he was in room 217. However, there are plenty of other reports from guests that this hotel is extremely haunted. Some say there is an energy about the place that you can feel upon entering the building. Many ghost investigators have called this hotel the Disneyland for ghosts. All kinds of strange stories have come out of this hotel. So let's begin our ghost tour in the very room where King had his nightmare. Thank you. 
room 217 is extremely active. There is a long list of paranormal activity that happens in this room. As I talked about in the history portion, room 217 was the site of a gas explosion that happened in 1911. The explosion caused major damage to the building but did not kill anyone. However, the maid who entered the room with the candle that triggered the explosion was named Mrs. Wilson. While she only suffered two broken ankles, she was able to come back to work at the hotel, becoming head housekeeper until she passed away. Ever since her death in the 1950s, Mrs. Wilson's ghost seems to have come back to the hotel to go about her duties as being a maid, especially in room 217. Guests who are brave enough to stay in the room have reported strange paranormal activity, like lights being turned on and off on their own, the closet door opening and shutting by itself, and objects and furniture moving on their own. Guests also have found their belongings rearranged. Some guests have left their suitcases on the bed, left the room for a while, come back to find their suitcase unpacked and clothes neatly folded. Now, if I had a ghost in my room, that's the kind of ghost I would want. The kind that chip in. Put away the dishes once in a while, maybe do my laundry. <laughs> EVPs of both men and women's disembodied voices have been captured inside of the room. Mrs. Wilson has been known to be old-fashioned toward unmarried couples. Unmarried guests have reported feeling an invisible force between them while they lay in bed, and the activity of objects moving seems to increase when unmarried couples stay inside the room. When the movie Dumb and Dumber was being filmed, actor Jim Carrey was actually given room 217 to stay in. According to reports, he only lasted three hours and went running from the room and never stayed in the hotel again. He also refused to talk about what he had witnessed, even with close friends. He is not the only one to not last the whole night inside of room 217 because of its high levels of paranormal activity. While room 217 is the most famous and most requested room, the fourth floor is where all the extreme paranormal activity happens. And according to some staff members, if you make it through the night in some of these rooms, you deserve a medal of bravery. During the early 1900s, the fourth floor was nothing more than an attic space. Before this space was converted into more guest rooms, it was used to house female staff members and their children. The children would stay up in the attic with nannies who would watch over them while their parents worked at the hotel. Today, the fourth floor has guest rooms and the whole floor is reportedly haunted and each room seems to have a different spirit. But here is the list of rooms that are the most active. Starting off with room 401. 401 is known for its many child spirits. The ghosts of children have been seen and heard playing inside of the room. The closet door likes to open on its own. This space was used as the nanny's lounge when it was the lodging for staff members. This might be why the disembodied sounds of high-heeled shoes are also heard walking around the room when it is empty. Room 407 has a kind spirit who likes to make sure you are comfortable. People who have been lying in bed have reportedly felt someone invisible tucking them into bed at night. Some have also reported the sensation of someone invisible sitting on the bed. Room 412 has poltergeist activity. From moving objects to the sound of banging on the walls, this room has everything on the poltergeist checklist. There is even a story of a woman who was staying in this room the night of the shining ball. The Shining Ball is a hotel masquerade party that happens in October. After the guest enjoyed a night of dancing, she went back to her hotel room. After she was asleep for a while, she claims that she suddenly woke up with her bed levitating in the air. As anyone would do in this situation, she freaked out and went running from the room to the hotel lobby. She was so unconsolable that an ambulance had to be called so the EMTs could help her calm down. She left that night from the hotel and never came back. Room 418 has more child ghosts, but the ones that hang out in this room are mischievous. They have been known to pull the covers off of the bed while guests are sleeping, and personally, that would freak me out. I don't know about you, but if you were sound asleep and suddenly the covers got ripped off of you in the middle of the night, 
Whoa, that would freak me out. People have also reported hearing disembodied childlike footsteps run around the bed in the middle of the night. The closet in this room also has been known to open and close on its own, but this time people say that they see the hangers move as if someone is running their hands over them. Room 428 has two very interesting things that happen inside. The first is that guests have complained to staff of hearing the sound of moving furniture and loud footsteps above them. The only problem with that is above them is just the roof, and since they are on the top floor, it doesn't really make any sense for there to be those sounds above them, yet people claim to hear those sounds often. The second claim is that there is an entity that haunts this room known as the Friendly Cowboy. He is described as a tall man wearing a cowboy hat. He is nicknamed the Friendly Cowboy because he is known for appearing at night, walking to the side of a bed, and then kissing a woman on the cheek. He has been seen standing in the corner of the room, both by male and female guests, and footsteps inside the room are heard often. No one knows who this man is because like I said earlier, there has not been many deaths on this property and I found nothing that really matches this man's description. A common paranormal claim is the sound of children playing in the hallways at night. This happens on all floors, but it's mostly known to happen on the fourth floor. The front desk of the hotel has been known to get phone calls from guests complaining of children keeping them awake. These calls happen often and whenever the hotel staff go to check, the hallway is always empty. Guests have also been known to poke their heads out of the door to check what the noise is to find a completely empty and quiet hallway. This just adds to the mountain load of weird paranormal activity that has happened at this hotel. Things happen often and it really doesn't make any sense because like we learned in the history, nobody really died here and there wasn't any big tragedy that they're aware of. Let's go down a floor to room 304. 304 has been known to have shadow figures that walk along the wall. People see this mostly in the corner of their eye, either while they're unpacking or while they're lying in bed. Pictures have also been known to go flying off the wall for no reason. The grand staircase in the main lobby is also known by another name, the Vortex. This staircase is extremely haunted and both guests and staff have reported seeing children playing on the stairs and even sliding down the banisters. Guests who have taken pictures near the staircase have found apparitions of people in Victorian clothing climbing the stairs. Also, the ghosts of Mr. and Mrs. Stanley have been seen holding hands standing at the top of the staircase, smiling down on guests. Strange orbs and flashes of light have also been seen. Some paranormal researchers think that this staircase might be a gateway for ghosts to come and go as they please. Guests climbing the staircase have felt sudden bouts of dizziness and felt random cold spots. In some cases, people have felt as though something cold and electric passed right through their body. If this is a vortex, perhaps guests that suddenly feel weird just unknowingly walk through a spirit. The ghost of Mr. Stanley has been seen with and without his wife. When he is not seen with Flora, he likes to walk around the hotel. He has been seen sitting in the lobby reading a newspaper. Many mistake him for a real guest until he disappears. Mr. Stanley also likes to be a helpful ghost. He has been known to help young children find their way back to the main lobby or their parents if they become lost. Inside the billiards room, there is an interesting entity known as the Torso Man. It's exactly how it sounds, just the top half of a man's body that tries to manifest inside of the room. This has been seen both with the naked eye and captured in photographs. The sound of disembodied footsteps and glasses at the bar area have been known to move on their own. Up next is the concert hall. In the concert hall, there are a few different ghosts who like to hang out in this space, but the one who has the most right to be there is Flora Stanley. Flora has been seen sitting at her grand piano, and guests and staff have said to hear the piano playing by itself when the room is empty. 
Whenever Flora's ghost is present, most people say they smell the scent of roses because that was Flora's favorite perfume. The concert hall is also known to be haunted by a ghost named Paul. Paul was a maintenance man for the Stanley Hotel and he was a jack of all trades kind of guy. He would also act as the hotel's security and sweep the buildings to make sure the 11 p.m. curfew was met. After he passed away, it is believed that Paul came back to the hotel because he apparently didn't want to leave his old job. Now Paul still goes on about his duties and he has been known to tell people to get out when he feels like guests are someplace they shouldn't be. The main place his ghost likes to hang out is in the concert hall. There have been many EVPs of Paul saying get out and hey as if he's trying to get their attention. He's not a mean spirit though, he's just following through with his old job in the afterlife. Now I got some of this next information from a podcast called Astonishing Legends. The episode is titled The Stanley Hotel with Connor J. Randall. I also wanted to source another podcast called Graveyard Tales. I listened to their episode, which is episode 39, titled The Stanley Hotel. Both of those podcasts are great, and they have a way bigger following than I do, and I just wanted to give them a shout out and give them credit because I took a lot of notes on this hotel from different online sources that you can find all down below, but I also listened to these podcasts on top of all the other information I got. So all my sources are linked down below, and I also have links to both of these podcasts' main websites if you want to check them out. With that being said, let's talk about Lucy. Lucy is another entity that has been known to hang out inside the concert hall. Lucy has a strange backstory. So supposedly there was a young woman named Lucy that was a runaway and she was squatting inside the concert hall during the 1970s. At this time, the hotel was going through some financial trouble and it was in a little bit of disrepair. The story says that one day Lucy was discovered and was kicked out of the building during the winter time. She was found frozen to death a few days later in town on a park bench. Now her ghost has been seen inside the concert hall. When her presence is felt, it is a pleasant and kind feeling. She also likes to hum and sing and her voice has been captured on EVPs. The story of Lucy has been told ever since the 1970s and Connor wanted to know more about her. Connor was the guest on the Astonishing Legends podcast episode that I listened to. Connor worked at the Stanley for many years. He first started at age 17 at the concierge desk. He later became the hotel staff resident paranormal investigator, and he helped make the tours to what they are today. And he has worked a thousand nights doing paranormal investigating and leading tours. You might also know Connor from the Hellier series on Amazon Prime, and he helped create the ghost hunting technique using multiple devices that is called the Estes Method. The Estes part of the name is because his paranormal team created this at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. Connor had been told about Lucy's spirit since he started working at the front desk when he was only 17. Since then, he had experienced many interactions with Lucy during paranormal investigations. Eventually, he decided to find out more information about Lucy, so he went to look up her records and could not find anything about it. There were no death records of a girl named Lucy that fit the description, and there were also no articles in the paper that talked about a girl who died of hypothermia in the town. After this, Connor stopped talking about Lucy so much on the tours because he didn't want to give out false information. Strangely enough, as people stopped talking about Lucy, her ghost seemed to vanish. Now she is almost never seen or heard from during EVP sessions, when before she was very vocal and a dominant ghost in the space. Connor does not know why this happened, but it was almost like as her story faded away, so too did Lucy's ghost. And for me, that makes me sit here and think, well, then what was he talking to? Because that's really creepy. And I will talk more about that in the theory section. Underneath the complex is an old tunnel and cave system. 
These caves were used back in the day for workers to transport goods and other items to various buildings without being seen by day guests. This was also helpful in case of a snowstorm. The tunnels are no longer in use, but down in the basement, there are some interesting claims. Some people who have been down to the basement say they smell baking bread, yet no one knows why this would be the case. A gray cat with bright green glowing eyes has also been seen wandering through the tunnels and the basement, only to disappear when people get a good look at it. We also have a ghost named Eddie who likes to hide in the basement. Staff members of the hotel have no idea where Eddie came from because he just randomly showed up one day in 2013. When Eddie entered a room, people would notice right away because of his smell. Ghost investigators and guests on tours would start to complain of a bad BO smell that would fill the basement. This smell earned Eddie's nickname, the Smelly Man. Once the smell arrived, tour guides knew something was about to happen. Eddie has been known to turn on flashlights by themselves, cause electronics to malfunction, and move objects. The staff at the Stanley have no idea where Eddie came from or why he randomly showed up, but they do feel like he could have been a hitchhiking ghost that came with a guest and loved the energy of the hotel so much that he decided to stick around. Eddie might have become embarrassed about his smell and people talking about his smell because it has changed. Now he smells like fresh dryer sheets, so do ghosts wash their clothes? Many EVPs of him saying his name as either Ed, Eddie, or Edward have been recorded. He also started to scare guests by saying disturbing things into recorders like murder, stab, and choke. Connor and his friend actually had to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with Eddie to try to calm him down and make him understand that it's not okay to scare people, but after that, Eddie got mad and now calls them really mean names on the recorder, and he still is hiding in the basement. Something I find strange about this hotel and the connection to Stephen King is not only did this hotel inspire the book The Shining, but it could have sparked the idea for another book, Pet Cemetery. There was actually a pet cemetery that stood outside of the hotel. Now, it's not known if King knew about the cemetery at the time of his stay or not, but these ghost stories had already existed at the hotel by the time Stephen King went to stay the night. Buried at this cemetery are beloved family pets of managers and staff members that lived on the property. The Stanleys were really cool people, it sounds like. They let their staff have dogs, have their kids. Most people back then were not cool with that kind of stuff at all. And it sounds like the Stanleys were like really chill and like forward thinking people. There were a few pets buried there, but the most famous were Cassie, the golden retriever, and Comanche, a big fluffy white cat. Their ghosts have been seen and heard throughout the property. Sadly, the cemetery was removed a few years ago to make room for a new wedding pavilion, and there were a lot of people who were really upset that this happened, including some pet psychics. And in case you didn't know being a pet psychic was a thing, it definitely is. Back to what I said about King, it is weird that he had such a vivid dream inside this hotel, and he is not the only one to have had a strange and intense experience within the hotel. While these experiences did not give everyone the idea to write a book, it still brings up a really good question. What is going on on this property? Many people have theories as to why this hotel is so haunted. First of all, the hotel was built on limestone and quartz, and it has a lot of running water around the property. Many paranormal researchers and spiritual beliefs say that these two types of minerals create a strong natural energy and they are conductors so spirits can use the energy to manifest. There is also a lot of running water on this property and many people believe that running water helps give the energy to spirits so they can manifest easier. Pair this with the fact that the grand staircase seems to be some kind of vortex or ghost highway from beyond that might explain why there are so many different and random spirits 
ghosts coming and going through the hotel. The Stanley is, after all, a hotel, and these ghosts might need a place to stay before they move on to their next destination. Another theory is that this land had a great battle on it thousands of years ago, or that the hotel was built on sacred Native American land, possibly even a Native American burial ground. This kind of cursed land could have caused the hotel to keep its guests trapped here in the afterlife instead of letting them move on. The third theory is that the hotel is haunted because people want it to be. There is a theory that if you have enough people believing in something, you can actually manifest that belief into reality. For instance, if thousands of people talk about the ghosts at the Stanley, thousands others go to the Stanley expecting to have paranormal experience, it is believed that all of that kind of energy combined creates the hauntings inside the hotel. This is sometimes referred to as a tulpa, and a tulpa is actually my next bonus episode that I'm going to make for my Patreons, and I'm going to take a deep look into what a tulpa is. But to give you an idea of what a tulpa is, take the ghost of Lucy, for example. Lucy did not exist, yet there was a ghost story that everybody thought to be true. They gave her a backstory and eventually a ghost started interacting intelligently saying her name was Lucy. After the truth was learned and everyone stopped talking about her, the ghost of Lucy faded away. This is why some people believe that so many people want the hotel to be haunted that they are unknowingly creating their own ghostly presence inside the hotel. The last idea as to why the Stanley is so haunted is a mashup of the first and third theories. The hotel and the land it's on creates the perfect energy for ghosts to come and go through a vortex. When ghosts show up at the hotel, they notice that this is the perfect place to stay and do some hauntings. Think about it. It's called the Disneyland for ghosts because everyone who comes to the hotel wants to have a paranormal experience. They have costume parties, black tie balls, scary movie nights, a waiting list a mile long for the most haunted rooms. This is a great place for ghosts to enjoy haunting the living and getting their stories told. Some of these ghosts might might have been hitchhikers like Eddie. They might have come with a guest and then decided to stay because the hotel has a great energy. They might even be visiting other ghost friends and family members at this hotel, like the movie Coco. Has anyone seen that movie? If you have seen that movie, you know the Magnolia Bridge that they cross over from the land of the dead to the land of the living? That's kind of how I view this grand staircase, if it's all to be believed. This could all be speculation, but this is how I think. I think the staircase could be a bridge like a vortex of sorts that lets ghosts come and go. So when people see Mr. and Mrs. Stanley's ghost standing at the top of the stairs greeting guests, they might not be greeting the living. Maybe they have kept their hotel open in the afterlife, because after all, who says the party has to stop once you're dead? Since I have never been to the Stanley Hotel, I don't know if any of this is true, but I sure had fun covering this. So now my question for you is, what do you think? Is the Stanley Hotel as haunted as they say, or is it all just made up for tourism? Regardless, I think the Stanley Hotel is a really cool historical building, and I would definitely love to stay there and yeah just like everyone else I would love to have a paranormal experience Thank you all so much for listening to this episode about the Stanley Hotel. I had so much fun covering this one, and I gotta be honest, I was expecting a little more on the creepier side of ghosts, and it was kind of more of that more of just mundane haunting, which is still really scary, but there was nothing like super scary except for maybe the bed levitating and Eddie being kind of mean on the microphone, but other than that, I didn't run into anything like major from this hotel. However, it's super haunted. Like I said before, every room seems to have something going on, and it doesn't 
doesn't make any sense, which I think is the main creep factor of the hotel. The fact that there's so much paranormal activity and there's like zero reason for there to be that much paranormal activity. I believe that that is the main draw and that is what has everybody scratching their heads. I was really happy to do this location to kick off my Halloween season. So my next episode is going to be about Alcatraz. Then after that, it's going to be the Winchester Mystery House. Then after that, the Bell Witch Cave. Yes, I'm doing two episodes that are kind of close together in range, like the Alcatraz is still in San Francisco, and then the Winchester Mystery House is right outside of San Francisco, but I still really did want to cover those because they are notoriously haunted. They have weirdness to them, and I thought they just fit Halloween so well, and of course, the infamous Bell Witch Cave episode will be our last and final episode for the Halloween series, and I will be dropping that hopefully the day before Halloween. If not, it'll come out on Halloween, but I'm shooting for the day before Halloween so that way you guys can listen to it whenever you want and get your spook on the day before or the night before Halloween, or you can choose to listen to it on Halloween. Alcatraz episode and the Winchester Mystery House episode will be kind of spaced in between the 1st and the 31st of October. I haven't exactly narrowed down when those are going to come out, but I know that they'll come out kind of evened out in between. I am so excited for Halloween this year. Thank you guys again so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you guys enjoyed it and just know that more spooky content is on the way. Links to my Patreon page is down below along with my social media handles. I have Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Go ahead and follow those so you can keep up to date with me and what I'm doing and that way we can have a fun conversations about things that we've talked about in the show. Also, I have a link to my Facebook group page down below. If you want to join up on that, it's free and it's fun and we post funny memes sometimes like haunted memes and Halloween, how excited we are for Halloween. And I also really want to get started talking about my episodes with you guys. We can talk about the history, the hauntings. We can talk about pretty much anything you want as long as it stays in the realm of paranormal for the most part. And as long as it's kind because I have group rules, like you have to be kind, no bad language, none of that kind of stuff. But if you're already a member of the group page, don't be shy. I want it to be a safe space so that way we can all talk about our favorite things, paranormal and history, and just get to know each other a little better. All right, you guys, I will see you guys back here real soon with another episode. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you all have a happy Halloween.